All right, so if you have your Bible, or it's written on your sheet there in front of you, let's take a look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Acts four thirty-two, and we're going to read through five sixteen. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said... Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young, man, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an inter- interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who had heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that, e- so, that, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them the people, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed grass withers flowers fade away but the word of our God stands forever so let's pray before we consider it further Heavenly Father, we know that these are your words, and so as the author, we ask you now to be the teacher. Pray that you would work in spite of our sinful selves, that you would be in our midst by your Holy Spirit to teach us, to change us, to show us your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ. Jesus, we ask that, and we can expect that because you're good, and you love to bless your people. So we ask it in your name. Amen. All right, this one, this might be a little bit of a stretch. But does anybody happen to know 
who Rob Pilatus and Fabrice Morvan are. I would, I would be really impressed if you got it at this point. Um, all right, do you know who Millie Vanilli is? You remember Millie Vanilli? Does it ring a bell? Yes, singers. Well, sort of. That's where we're going. Uh, they won a Grammy for Best New Artist in 1990. Is everybody born by 1990? Yeah, in the middle. Okay, in the middle. Wow. Uh, so this was like sixth grade for me. Had, they had hits like Blame It on the Rain, which I can remember at the skating rink listening to Blame It on the Rain and whatnot. Girl, you know it's true. Only to have it come out that they were actually lip-syncing all of their music. What was the for? Uh, Best New Artist. Oh. Yeah, they were kind of a big deal. They won a Grammy. And so it comes out they were lip-syncing, and not only were they lip-syncing, they weren't even lip-syncing to their own singing. The two guys that were Millie Vanilli were not the ones who sang the songs. And so, no, they didn't even write them. So they lost their Grammy. Their careers obviously were destroyed. One of the guys even committed suicide. Yes. Well, they they had it taken away from them. There were over 25 different lawsuits that resulted from this. Um, All kinds of of upheaval in the aftermath of this this scandal. And it's all because they were faking it. It's all because they were claiming to be something that they weren't. And the American people, even our legal system, popular culture said that that's just not going to fly. And so this semester, you know, we're studying through the book of Acts, the story of the church, and we're asking ourselves or asking the text every week the question, what is it that's so special about the church? How is it endured like it has? How did it go from such a small group of a handful of guys 2,000 some odd years ago into what it's become today, maybe the most influential movement in history. So what is it that's caused it to do that? And so I think our passage tonight shows us that one of the aspects that's so special about the church, that's unique about Christianity, is that it doesn't allow you to fake it. In Christianity, there's no place for faux or fake spirituality. Or I guess to state it positively, we'd say it like this. That the church, it's advanced, it's endured, because it's a place where you can actually be real and open and honest and transparent about yourself before God. You can be honest about who you really are. All right, so this is a very strange passage in many ways. It's a difficult one to deal with. And so we're going to try to be honest with it tonight. And I want to do that by asking three questions. Show us three things. First, what was the real problem here? What was the real sin involved? Number two, why was it judged so harshly by God? And number three, what was the result? What happened as a result of this? All right, so the first thing, what was the real problem? All right, so this is a, in many ways a very weird story, so we need to rehearse it. Um, at the end of chapter 4, what we read, you see that the young, young church uh, is in community, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, so much so that they share everything with one another, even to the point of 
selling their own possessions. If there were people among them that had needs, they would sell their possessions and use that money and give it away to people that needed it. Um, and then we get the, uh, so we get the positive example of Barnabas, who has a field, he has some land, he sells it, gives it to the church so that people can eat on it and whatnot, get their needs provided for. And then we have that story contrasted with this story of Ananias and Sapphira, who seem to do something pretty similar to what Barnabas did, but it comes out way different. Um, and so as we take a closer look at it and we sort of piece some of the uh, pieces together, we can begin to get an idea, or we can know what, what exactly it was that Ananias and Sapphira did. Um, they decided to sell their land and give their money to the apostles, just like Barnabas, but they decided to sell their land, give the money to the apostles, and tell them that, that what they were giving the apostles was the same as what they sold it for. They wanted people to believe that they were giving all that they had gotten from the sale of, sale of their land to the apostles, to the church. They were claiming it was the full amount. All right, so real quick as a little side note, it's important to say a couple of things here. Um, first, we, gotta, we have to say that they were not under any compulsion to sell their land. You know, Peter makes that clear. So that, uh, we don't need to draw from that that you, know, you need to be selling your things and giving them to people it's required by the Bible, right? It's encouraged. It is uh, certainly a good thing to do, but it's not required. It's not communism. Um, and they weren't under any compulsion to give the full amount. It would have been perfectly fine for them to sell the land and then give part of it. it was, they were totally within their rights to do that. But they wanted the apostles and, and presumably the whole church to think that they had sold it for this amount of money. They sold it for $50,000 and they were giving all $50,000 to the church, whatever the figure was. And so the real problem is not that they were being stingy, that they were keeping something that wasn't theirs. The real problem is that they were being dishonest. They were being dishonest. And they were, as, as Peter says in the text, lying to God and to man. Essentially, they wanted people to think that they were something that they really weren't. They wanted people to think of them uh, better than they actually were. And so to draw a, quick, a couple of quick applications, it might be easiest for us to think like, okay, not going to struggle with that one, right? I'm not going to sell any land and then pretend to give, you know, the full price to the church. Okay, I don't, that's not going to be a big deal in life, so I guess I'm safe from that one. But I think as we look at the root of it, as we think about what really is at the heart of that, I think it is going to begin to hit a little closer to home. Because we may not do that, but we probably, we probably do things that we all, no doubt to some degree, want people to think of us better than we really are. I think it'd be fair to say that we, I know for me, we all struggle with, we want people to think of us in the best way possible. Um, and so I think if we're honest, we say we fake it a lot. We want people, we don't want people to think that we really struggle like we do. Or uh, we don't struggle with certain things, Right? Uh, we don't want people to know the real struggle in our life. And so sometimes we might even uh, put up some sort of fake struggle, like, yeah, it's been really hard. You know, I've been really struggling cheating on tests or whatever it is because we don't want people to know what we're really dealing with because it's too embarrassing. We want people to think good of us. 
So along, you know, if you're a Christian, sometimes it's easy, it might be tempting to, to try to get people to think that you're holier than you are, right? To try to get people to think that you, let on that you pray a whole lot more than you really do. Uh, to let people think that you're moved and in touch with the Spirit a whole lot more than maybe you really are. Um, you know, you get into conversations after worship about how moved you were. Um, and again, not that that's a bad thing. Hopefully you were. Um, but I think sometimes we can do those things so that we'll, to prop ourselves up. So that people won't really get to know the real us. So that they'll think that we've got it together. And then more mundane things, like sometimes we embellish stories just a little bit. You know, we, we put just a little positive spin on it, or we leave out just a little bit that might be a little incriminating so that we come out looking as best as possible. And so I think the temptation to fake it for you and I is just as real as it, as it was here. We don't want people to know the real us. All right, so we see the real problem or the real sin here is, is that sin of faking it. So why such harsh, harsh judgment? Why does God seemingly come down so heavy? Because even after seeing it maybe in a different light by looking at it through that lens, I think you're still left with, just to put it bluntly, the, the problem of thinking, that just seems like a little over the top, doesn't it? I mean, to strike them dead immediately for that, it just seems a little harsh. So let's try to make some sense of it. I think a big clue for us comes in verse 3, 5, 3. Peter says that Satan has filled Ananias' heart. Satan has filled Ananias' heart. And now look, that's not to say that Ananias wasn't responsible for his actions. You know, the devil made me do it. He couldn't help it, right? But the text makes it clear that this is an attack on, the, on, the, on this young church by Satan. And God protects, one of the things we see is God protecting his church fiercely from the attacks of Satan. He's not going to let any. He's not going to let this kind of hypocrisy and dishonesty and, and fake spirituality get into the church at this point. He's just not going to let it happen. Because the reason is because God knows that it's not just a small thing. Because I'll be honest, that when you read this story, you think, "Look, okay, I'm sure it's a big deal. It's wrong, but it's not that big a deal." But God knows that this, it's not a small thing. And so why is it not a small thing? Why would Satan choose to attack the church this way? He wants to take down the church. Why would he choose this? Because he knows that if he can introduce this kind of, this kind of dishonesty and deceitfulness, that if he can begin to get a wedge in the door, a foot in the door like that, that that's going to begin to create disunity. That he's going to break up that tight community that they have. And if he can break up community through that sort of dishonesty and, and, and faux spirituality, then he's one. If he can disrupt that, he knows that everything else is going to fall apart. All right. Do you believe me on that? I don't know. Let me give you a, a try to support my point. Give you an example. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth is really screwed up. They got all kinds of problems. There are all kinds of sins going on. Things like, uh, apparently some guy is sleeping with his, 
stepmother and is proud of it, is flaunting it. Uh, There's all kinds of sexual immorality. People are getting drunk at communion uh, and they're making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. They're suing each other. Uh, You've got husbands and wives abstaining from sex because they think it's holier if you avoid it. You've got all kinds of problems. And so when Paul writes to address them, the very first thing that he does, the very first problem that he addresses in the church is the fact that they are not unified. The first thing that Paul addresses is their disunity, is the fact that they don't get along with one another, that they fight with one another. I mean, you look at that litany of sins and you would think, okay, that's not the number one, right? Like this rampant sexual immorality. But Paul chooses that one first because he knows that if that, as that division grows, everything else is going to come with it. Because, uh, you know, we said this a couple weeks ago, community is the context in which God grows us. And so when that gets destroyed, any little thing can come in and take us down. When people are isolated from one another, then all sort, really any sort of sin can come in and destroy you. It's kind of like, I think you think about it like the AIDS virus. You know, if you get AIDS, what is it that ends up killing you? Exactly. I think cold is probably one of the number one things. The AIDS virus itself doesn't actually kill you. But what it does is it weakens your immune system so much so that some, you know, normal problem like a the common cold can come in and wreck your body and kill you. And I think that's what uh, Paul to the Corinthians and what we're seeing here, uh, that community, being united together, is sort of like our immune system. And that when that gets wrecked, we open ourselves up to, to any and everything. And so God judges that sort of hypocrisy and dishonesty swiftly and severely. So that it doesn't take root because the church is at such a crucial stage. So what does that mean for us? Applications. Well, it means that God, obviously it means that God takes these matters very seriously. And we should too. I think it means that we need to think about the ways in which we talk about the church. That we talk about one another. Um, How quick we are uh, to talk about kind of the whispers about what we really think about our church. About the leaders in the church or the... Uh, the worship style and this and that, right? We have a tendency to want to sow disunity. It means that we can't, it means that you and I can't write each other off when we rub each other the wrong way. It means that if if we really are going to be a part of a Christian community and we're going to be transparent with one another, we're not going to fake it, so to speak, it means that when we don't fake it and when we see each other's sins and our sins rub up against one another, I sin against you and you sin against me, it means that we can't write each other off. That we can't just chalk up people uh, because we don't get along. It means that we're going to have to confront each other out of love. It means that we're going to have to be willing to be confronted. It means that we're not going to be able to look down on others. And I think ultimately it means this, that you and I need each other that you all need each other. Christians need one another. 
All right, so thirdly and finally, what was the result? We've seen the heart of the sin. We've seen why God judges so harshly. What was the result? Well, I think it's uh, two things, both of which are fairly interesting. Text tells us that two things happen. Uh, one, there was fear. And number two, they grew. So let's first take fear. Uh, you see that in verse 5, 5-5, five, five, and then five eleven. It caused the people to fear God. And they have to understand when the Bible talks about fear and the fear of God, it doesn't mean along the lines of, of sheer terror and you know, fright, scared of God. Uh, they're not scared of God because you, know, you never know when he might pop off and just decide to strike you dead. It's not what it's talking about. Um, when the Bible talks about the fear of God, it's referring to a reverent sense of awe of who God is, of his power, a respect for God because he's holy, because he's perfect. You know, it's, it's kind of like electricity. I think that would be a fair uh, illustration. If you don't have a healthy fear of electricity, if you think, I can really handle electricity however I would like to handle electricity, right? I can approach it in whatever way I would like to, it's going to kill you. But if you approach electricity in the proper way, it can be very useful, right? Let's list some of the ways electricity can be useful. Kidding. Um, and I think, I think that's the point, that, uh, that it creates this sense of fear and respect and this, this understanding that God is holy and powerful and he can only be approached in the ways in which he says. And so I think it's important to remember that this is a New Testament passage, right? This is in the New Testament. Um, because I think that a lot of times we probably default to thinking that the God is sort of different Old Testament and New Testament. God, Old Testament, kind of mean, kind of scary, kind of does some weird stuff, uh, tends to get, he's kind of temperamental, strikes people dead a lot. But in the New Testament, uh, you have a whole different picture of God. Shiny, happy, you know, loves, forgives, and all that. But what we need to keep in mind is that God is, has been and always will be the same throughout. Both of those are, are poor pictures, right? Those are stereotypes to say that God was mean and temperamental and now he's just happy, shiny kind. Um, God is, I think it's important for us to see that God is still exactly that holy. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that you and I need to see our sin for what it really is. That our sin is against a God that is so holy that he can't be in the presence of sin. That sin is... Sin can be struck dead in front of God. And that sin deserves, frankly, sin deserves wrath and punishment. We don't like to talk about that today, but it does. And it means, it means that there's no such thing as a little sin. Right? We probably have those sins that, you know, you got your big ones, and then you got the ones that are like, come on, it's not that big a deal. You got the ones that you kind of, everybody does. I know it's wrong, and I'm trying, you know, I'll give it up for Lent for a little while, but come on. Um, it's not that big a deal. I don't cheat on every test, or we're just we're just kind of fooling around a little bit. Um, you know, so what if I don't get along with with one that one person? Um, or you know, I don't look at that kind of stuff on the internet a whole lot. Just every once in a while. That means that sin is serious. If you, if you're a believer, 
it shows you how much greater the gospel really is. That if my sin really is that bad, then Jesus really does love me that much if he saved me. Um, secondly and finally, what was the result? Well, there was fear. And then secondly, it, they grew. Verse 14 says, multitudes of people. Now think about that for a second. All right, think about if, if word got out with your, you know, a fraternity or sorority on campus, word got out that um, something like this happened the week before rush in this group. Like, yeah, yeah, they lied about paying their dues, struck dead. All right, what do you think rush is going to look like the next week for your group? Probably not going to be a whole lot of people there, right? Um, but that's not the case here. The church grew and grew by multitudes. And so the text doesn't exactly come out and say why. But at least one reason, I think it's fair to say, is that, that it caused it to grow is because this was a community in which you actually could come as you truly are. That what the church was was a place that you could come and you could actually be yourself and kind of get off of it for a little bit and say, look, this really is me. I really am this messed up. I really, I really do have these problems, and actually there's more there than you know. The church is a place, it grew because it was a place where people could come and not put on the face, right? Not feel like they had to manage everyone's impression of, of themselves. They could just come and be honest. They could come before God and be themselves. And yet at the same time knowing that this God is so holy that, he, that he's that holy that we just talked about. He could be struck dead in front of that holiness. And yet it was a place that you, didn't, you could come and not have to try to be good enough to, to earn that. Because the whole message of the church is that you can't. And so the church grows because people are faced with that dual reality that on the one hand, they've rebelled against God, a holy God, that can only be approached the way he says he can be approached. And that the way to approach God is that you have to be perfect. And yet at the same time, or rather on the other hand, that God offers to give you the perfection that he requires from you. And that he does that by, by giving us his son, by giving Jesus Christ to live and die in our place, not as our, exam as our example. God doesn't give Jesus to say, look, this is how you should live, so however much you measure up to this, it's however much you'll be accepted. No, he gives Jesus to live and die in our place. And the, the beauty of it is that it's a place, the church is a place where you... You're not allowed to fake it because if you fake it, you've missed the whole essence of the gospel. You get that? That if you try to fake it, you've missed the whole beauty of the gospel that you need a savior. And that's what the church is all about. That Jesus has come and said, look, you're far worse than you know, but I love you more than you could ever imagine. And I think it's in one sense fair to say that the only thing you can't do is think you can do it. The only thing you can't do is fake it. 
And so ironically, it's only when, you, when we begin to see how, how wrecked we are, how broken we are, and own that, that we actually begin to find healing for that. Because Jesus himself said that he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And so I would just simply end with asking you, are you sick? Are you sick? Because Jesus says that you don't have to fake it here. You can come as you are and be yourself. Because he's good and he offers you himself. All right, let's, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, were that that were true. Lord, we would long for... We would long for community in which we could actually be ourselves and be honest about the struggles that we have. But the fact that you say that we can do that in front of you is almost too much to take in. The fact that we can be honest about the depths of our sin and how black our hearts really are, and yet you look at us because of Christ and say, I think you're amazing. Father, I pray that that truth would be true of all of us tonight. And if it's not, would you make it so? Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.